welcome to the Ben Don't Break podcast. I am Aaron Schweitzer, your host with musically gifted co-host, Laurel Bronze. This podcast is powered by The Source Weekly, Ben's locally owned newspaper. We are the fastest growing podcast in Central Oregon. Thank you, listeners. Uh, people tune in to find out how our community is adapting to living in our new normal. We are supported by Worthy Brewing, who lives by their motto, Earth First, Beer Second. This week, we are chatting with Ellen Waterston. She is an Oregon author and poet who has published numerous works, including an essay collection, memoir, and four books of poetry. One book of poetry, Via Lactea. Did I say that right? All right. Thanks, yeah. Ellen. A woman of a certain age walks the Camino, was converted into a libretto, and premiered as a full-length opera. She's also an advocate for the literary arts and founder of The Writing Ranch, which offers workshops and retreats for established and emerging writers. She was founder and for over a decade, the executive director of The Nature of Words, literary arts nonprofit featuring an annual literary festival, which I miss dearly. She has won numerous awards, including an honorary PhD from Oregon State University Cascades. Her most recent book, Walking the High Desert, Encounters with Rural America Along the Oregon Desert Trail, was published in June of 2020. Ellen, that's quite the, quite the bio. Thanks for being here with us today. Well, thank you for having me. Maybe we could start by just uh, telling our listeners a little bit about your background and how um, you ended up getting from a small New England town to Eastern Oregon. Well, love will find a way. Um, uh, my husband and I uh, moved west to ranch, first ranching in Montana and then uh, in the high desert of Oregon. Uh, that's how we got here. Well, you know, we didn't know what we didn't know. Um, and it was a great, it was great fun finding out, <laughs> particularly about ranching. But uh, we, we ranched for a number of decades and uh, the rest is history. Yeah, Ellen, how did, um, so how old were you when you moved to Eastern Oregon from back East? Uh, in my thirties. So that, that is quite the time for transition, uh, ending up what, what, and not to date too much, but that would have been quite a earlier stage in Oregon's history. Uh, yeah, no, that's uh, 40 years ago, folks, 40 years. <laughs> yeah, and I'll you were- it out there. Yeah, hey, I appreciate it. Did you, uh, and that would have been, uh, you were around the Burns area, were you not? North of Brothers, between uh, sort of north of Brothers or north, north of Hampton. There's oh. not much left of Hampton. Right. Um, but, <clears throat> Uh, yes, you could you could access it either way, or you could come in from the Polina Highway as well. You could so we were kind of in the middle of a great big expanse between those two uh, highways. But that was the first ranch. We migrated from the South Fork of the Crooked River to the Lower Crooked River, and more recently, um, I've I've had good fortune to be involved with some ranching on the Crooked River. So I guess <laughs> that's my calling card. And then it, um, most recently in your walking the high desert, I mean, you have a profound, I mean, it comes out just your affection for the West and for that area. Um, well, tell, maybe talk a little bit about how do you keep that uh, magic alive? How do you fuel it and keep it in your writing? 
I, you know, it's such a, it, it, the desert is so mysterious. And so the, the articulating an answer to that question is a bit mysterious as well. Uh, I think the magic about the desert for me is that I, I'm pretty persuaded that where we land, if we have any affinity for landscape at all, I, I, I believe where we land is some sort of, you know, school for teaching us what we need to know and, and what we don't know. Um, and in my case, the desert really has taught me patience, you know, to, to sharpen my peripheral vision, to have a keen eye, to uh, commitment. Things here are, it's subtle. The desert is subtle. It's not a quick yeah. fix. Things don't readily grow. You know, you're not overwhelmed with flowers. So, <laughs> So um, I, I have just grown to love it so, so much, so much. And I guess in, in answer to your question, how do I retain it? Well, it surprises me all the time. Yeah. All the time. That's what I love. Uh, whether, whatever season, wherever one is, um, thanks to those qualities that I will never, you know, uh, finish honing, um, there's always a surprise. And this would be true of any landscape anywhere if we just pay attention. But this is the one I've chosen to fall in love with. Tell us about your most recent book, Walking the High Desert. It's, it seems like it has a lot going on. There's the physical story, the sort of tangible, the actual trail, 750 mile trail that is fairly new. It was started by Onda, I guess, about 10 years ago. And then there's a lot of other things woven in. Um, the politics, there was the occupation of the Melher Wildlife Refuge. Um, how, did, how did all of that stuff weave together for you? Well, when I originally took the idea to um, the University of Washington Press, um, I was really wanting simply to talk about this new Oregon Desert Trail. And the fact that it sort of took its time, metaphorically, in terms of the zigs and zags, to get to southeastern Oregon, to the Owyhee Canyonlands. Um, and, you know, a sort of a polite conversation about land use and isn't it great and can't we all, you know. So, but then the occupation took place and um, it really changed, for me, changed the arc of the narrative of this, of this nonfiction. And um, it was alarming to me. And also I felt that it, it was tending to kind of stereotype the rural perspective. And because I've lived in that, um, in that region, I, I, I wasn't happy with that either. Uh, so there, there was, it just, it just became a bigger story. And so I decided to use each section of the trail to illustrate an issue that is pertinent to the trail, pertinent to Oregon, pertinent to the region, but in some respects pertinent nationally, and if not internationally, be it water, land use, urban rural divide, poverty, racism. So yeah, it, um, I haven't ever said this out loud, but um, I, I start, thought maybe the best review of the book would be that some of the spaghetti did stick to the ceiling. Uh, <laughs> um, but 
it was just a, a wonderful odyssey for me, right? So it, it again, it, this element of surprise, as I moved through this idea, it became more and more surprising uh, to me as well, the research, the people I talked to, as well as the trail. Ellen, you, you um, for people who don't know, I mean, you walk, walk the Camino and I mean, I can't miss the correlation between the walk that you did to the Camino and then bringing something like that to this new trail, which would be fantastic if people took the same, same approach you are in um, making that something that they do spiritually. How did you, um, there must've been a connection there for you. Um, I think so, but I want to make sure the listeners know that it, unlike the Camino, I didn't walk the whole trail, cash my water, go from the beginning to the end, 750 miles later. Um, <clears throat> I, I walked sections. There are some I have yet to walk, particularly the Pueblo Mountains, which I look forward to. Um, uh, but yes, the, there is something meditative about walking. Um, there is something meditative about just removing yourself from the noise of our existence and, and focusing on something that, uh, that kind of overwhelms you in a natural kind of a way. Sure. So, and, and also for a linked narrative, it's useful to have a trail, mm. just structurally. Well Ellen, one of the things I think um, a theme that has kind of come out of these podcasts, I think that we've been doing during this pandemic is, and people are reporting on it, but I hear it in people's voices too, when they communicate about this time, is this desire to step back a little bit. You know, a lot of people have taken this opportunity to reevaluate whatever that means for them individually, but they've also kind of, I mean, meditations up some 290%, whatever that means and how they're measuring it, God knows. But um, it, it, it feels like that when you talk about being able, I mean, if you're gonna walk 750 miles, you're gonna take a pretty big break from things. And uh, it seems very convenient to have this uh, book come out at a time when it seems like it's just what people would need right now. Well, I, I hope that's true. And I hope that it, is a good companion. Obviously, it's a, it's an unorthodox guidebook. Sure. Uh, uh, you know, it's sort of a guide to everything and nothing. Um, and but it does move along the trail, and it does conclude in that extraordinary cathedral of the Oahe Canyonlands. Yeah, and I mean, from what I know about the Camino, uh, I mean, there's beautiful sculptures and tiny villages all along it. And um, here you have a very natural version of uh, the same thing. It's pretty untouched where you're going. Well, it's very untouched. And there, there are not very many restocking places <laughs> right. Right. <laughs> on, this, on this high desert Camino, uh, you know, uh, highlights, you know, Paisley Fields, Andrews, this kind of thing. Um, and so it takes a lot of um, planning. It takes a lot of planning. And um, Onda has a wonderful map on site. They have all kinds of information for really those particulars that you would need to know before 
going um, on even a longer section all at once. But it's very, it's a very, it's very approachable also <laughs> if you're not that ambitious um, or or nuts, one of the two. <laughs> but through hikers are a special breed, and and uh, to your point, Aaron, the they write about the incredible reset that yeah. these through hikes provide them. And I mean, there's the group that does it sort of competitively, who can do the three big ones and you know less time than anybody else. There's that, but then there are there's a there's a number who go travel the world to do this kind of thing. It's their idea of really a, a, the ideal vacation, just stepping out and walking and just walking until the, the place itself is the guide. Ellen, I don't wanna put you on the spot, but if, if you have the book with you, would you mind reading an excerpt from, uh, from your latest? Well, yeah, why don't I read a little bit that, um, might <laughs> let people know that if they take it all on at once, this is what might happen to them. Um, this is a section of the book where you're coming out of um, Christmas Valley. You've been a very long time, um, 200 miles roughly, uh, in just sagebrush ocean. So you're probably ready for a change of scene. Um, and you're approaching Summer Lake. Right. So um, <clears throat> at this point on the trail, you're likely to begin channeling your inner mystic. It's not heat stroke. It's not delirium. It's the effect of this magical section of the Oregon Desert Trail. Quote, how much have I confused the coyote by peeing on his territory, unquote, you might find yourself asking or who am I? Tat twam, thou art that in Sanskrit. Welcome to the unreality of reality, the world of ellipses. Beware of odd impulses, such as setting up your GoPro in the middle of the lake bed, as one ecstatic traveler did, then running and leaping and twirling, stark naked, back and forth in front of the camera, getting farther and farther away Dancing, dancing, what a life does. Dancing, dancing, a definition of infinity. Mother nature is psychedelic. Notice how increasingly you are thinking, quote, like an ion, unquote, as the reader board on the Summer Lake store encourages. Or as poet David White asks, how do you know you're on your path? Because it disappears, that's how. Looking across Summer Lake is like viewing a kinetic exhibit of Mark Rothko paintings, long horizontal bands of color that change minute to minute, depending on the movement of the clouds, the position of the sun, the presence or absence of water in this seasonal five by 15 miles of lake. If by now you haven't been brought to your knees by the perfection of nature, reminded of your relative place in the scheme of things, this section of the trail will take care of that. That's excellent, Ellen. Thank you for that. Um, so I've read a number of articles about you that have talked about like 
this dichotomy that you have with having grown up, I mean, having spent so much time as, as a rancher and in the ranching community, and then also having kind of an urban existence, you know, literary existence being really networked with um, not only people in Bend, but probably all over the country and the world. Um, so like, how has that influenced your perspective on some of these issues that you explored in that book? Like some of the more political things like land use and things like that. Well, I mean, I feel so lucky to have ranched, to have uh, exited, had had the invitation to exit the kind of the silo that I grew up in. I just feel really lucky. And the what, what I find is that we, maybe it's convenience, maybe it's time, maybe it's lack of curiosity, uh, but obviously we're witnessing the result of this sort of silo perspective in the country, the, the separation that it causes, the lack of communication that it causes. And, um, and, and, and the, the notion really, even embedded in your question, that they aren't bedfellows, that there's somehow uh, an assumed separation. So part of what I would like, what I what I strive to show in my writing is the um, the same same that what what we all care about is the same. Um, it's just expressed differently. Brent Fenty the the, the man who brought the Oregon Desert Trail over the finish line, I don't want to suggest that there weren't a whole lot of people who worked on it prior, but when he was executive director of ONDA, he kind of sealed the deal. And he said, you know, it's an issue of um, feeling passionate about the same thing, but expressing it in different ways. And to me, that describes just about everything that's going on lately. And if we can get inside that, if, if each of us really commits to getting inside that, uh, I think we'll be able to, to not only appreciate these little mini cultures, these wonderful communities, wonderful rural communities, really unique um, and, and, and really kind of share. I mean, it's, it's, the language starts to get sort of soft in the middle when you talk about communication and getting along. Um, but, but there is a way to do it. So I'm not sure that I've answered your question. So please let me know if I haven't, Laurel, but, um, it's, a. It, it, I just feel lucky to have the love of the literary arts that I do, um, and the love of this landscape and the rural, uh, opportunities that exist within it, um, and try to marry them in my writing, particularly, and in the authors that, uh, I've had the good fortune to bring forward with uh, the Nature of Words and now the Waterston Desert Writing Prize. Helen, maybe we transition there to just talking a little bit about Nature of Words, which uh, I'm, I'm probably your biggest fan with regard to that, that event, and I do miss it dearly. I was telling Laurel a little anecdote about having been privileged to be at the Nature of Words you had at the High Desert Museum with Annie Prue. Oh, where we talked about the West and the Bigfoot guy was there. And it was, 
such a perfect event. You know, she was, she had been drinking a little bit. We had all been drinking a little bit. She was unabashed. She's already an, an outspoken Titan. And uh, she just was having a great time. You could just feel it. And it just, it, it was such an incredible night. And um, kudos to you. And uh, I wondered if you might just speak to those days and, and what they mean to you in retrospect. Well, I mean, hearing this kind of feedback is just so thrilling. Yeah. And it's one of those things where, um, again, I have to, there's nothing new under the sun. And I am uh, a product, really. I gained a lot of confidence. I benefited in so many ways um, in, in my early writing days in Oregon. Uh, I benefited from Fish Trap in Northeastern Oregon. And <clears throat> theirs is a summer event. And I thought, wow, let's, you know, not to challenge their kind of place on the calendar, but let's do one in November. Let's just do that in Bend. And <clears throat> it started off as the music of words in Drake Park um, and Patchett came to that one. Right. Um, when Bel Canto was just out before it had won any awards, which is how we got her. Yeah. Um, and then uh, the, the museum, along with OSU Cascades, which was just an idea at that time, came on board um, as supporters. And as Forrest Rogers, then the executive director of the museum said later at a, high des at a Nature Words event, he said, Ellen Waterston made me an offer that I couldn't <laughs> understand. <laughs> so, so we changed the name of it to the Nature Words um, uh, out of respect of the museum's participation. And the adventure, speaking of Aaron, was one of the very first. And bless Annie Prue, she oh, knew yeah. it was brand new, wet behind the ears. We didn't know what we were doing. And she came and she came for a song. Um, but yes, she took hold of that microphone and everybody was just <laughs> like, okay. It was uh, just her evening, but it was delightful. Her perspective on the West, she was phenomenal. She she got those other writers at the table to kind of step. They were everybody was a little unsure of how a panel in front of all these people seated having dinner was going to go. And you could tell what Annie thought she was going to make this an evening to remember. And she made those other writers. She was challenging them on the questions, and you were oh. moderating. I remember it well. Well, I have to say though that that panel idea, I don't know if it was two or three years later. Ursula Le Guin crossed her arms across her chest and said, this is not a discussion. <laughs> and I thought, God bless her <laughs> and how we do miss her. Right. Um, I thought, well, maybe next year we'll change the format just a little <laughs> bit. So at that point, uh, if you recall, we shifted to having an author at everybody's table yep. and um, they did little impromptu readings during the dinner in addition to what they had done at the Tower Theater and in addition to the workshops they all ran. Yeah, and, and you could tell that they had, um, and I, I think Sisters Folk Festival does an admirable job of this. There's that collegiality that forms between the writers and, and Sisters Folk Festival, the musicians, and they start having a genuinely good time on the, you know, unprompted. You, you don't have to like have the best question because they're 
giddy and, and ready to discuss stuff. I think it's so important with any of the arts that uh, these events, with all due respect, because we have budgets, we have calendars, we have certain time limits, um, but to the extent possible that they aren't a drive-by, mm. that the talent is in and out. So right. when it's possible to have a true festival, where, as you say, Aaron, people hang out, they get yeah. to know each other in a workshop, in an improv, in a this, in a that, and um, young students who've gotten some student prize get to hang with these big names. I mean, what could be more amazing? Yeah, that was great. No, it's a thrill. It's a thrill. Um, and I have to say that it spawned the Waterston Desert Writing Prize because as the nature of words shuttered, um, the endowment that it had created was rededicated to the Waterston Desert Prize. So there's, it, it, you know, yeah, it's a daisy chain. <laughs> so we, we usually don't get through one of these podcasts without talking a little bit about COVID. I was wondering if you could just kind of speak to how this time in our lives and society has affected your work, if it's been helpful to kind of be enclosed or too chaotic or? Um, I don't know if it's me or that the literary arts and perhaps the visual arts are kind of suited to COVID. I mean, to, in terms of uh, not necessarily needing an audience. You can survive for a period of time fairly successfully without an audience. Um, and it's, it's been useful to me that way. It's, it, and I, so, but then I, I think, oh my God, it's just probably that I'm basically, um, you know, a gerbil uh, and <laughs> <laughs> happy to be no. gerbling away in my office and writing and, you know, um, and realize I haven't moved in decades, as one of my poems says. Well, well um, even gerbils get up against the glass and start, you know, <laughs> doing their thing, so. <laughs> yeah, exactly. But my heart goes out to the performing arts. Um, and, and to all of us who are made something else because of, of a performance, theater, dance, music, um, you know, when you see old movies now, you, it, it, it looks like something from out of space. There's nobody's in a mask. They're all hanging out together. They're jumping in the swimming pool. I, I um, it's, it's a, but on the other hand, artists especially ask of a circumstance, what is the invitation? That's the job of an artist. What is the invitation? What is the invitation? What is the invitation? And now it's COVID that's offering that uh, question. And uh, I think, as you mentioned earlier, it's a, a time for reflection for many people. It's, um, it's delivering terrible, terrible hardship to certain communities that is um, horrifying. There's so much we don't know about COVID. I, I frankly think we better learn to love masks, just period, um, when, we're, when we're in bigger groups. But 
I like it because I can talk to myself in the grocery store and nobody can tell. <laughs> I like it because nobody knows, can tell who I am when I'm going around. You're completely anonymous in the most public places. There, there are pluses, <laughs> but I certainly don't want to get used to it. I can tell you that, Ellen. I can't, you know, breathing my own carbon dioxide for long periods <laughs> of time is not, not healthy for me. <laughs> Ellen, yeah. we had a, we had, we're running out of time. So I wanted to try to touch on something you and I had <clears throat> chatted about briefly around ageism and, and moving mm -hmm. into a new phase of life and, um, and confronting the kind of subtle discrimination that comes with this time. Um, maybe you could share some of your thoughts on that. Uh, um, yeah, I mean, they're really unformed, but, I, but, it, but it's, it's a real feeling um, so, you know, there are all these jokes about, yeah, you reach a certain age and you go in the doctor's office and you could be invisible, right? <laughs> yeah. Or God help, or God help us. They, they say, how are you doing young lady? And you want to punch them. <laughs> um, and so, and increasingly, uh, people that are, um, that, that you're doing everything with could be your children, which is as it should be. Um, but it's a culture that, not, not to say that within the, the larger culture, there aren't cultures that have more respect for um, their elders. Obviously, the Native American culture has a lot to teach us in that regard. But also, uh, if you're of Italian descent, and you know, if there's, if family's the deal. Um, so there are plenty of examples of how that can sustain but from my personal perspective i'm just curious about uh you know you know maybe it's my own denial right i mean maybe it's my own denial but well i think that's what i think that's what people tell themselves to kind of like push back the idea that it's actually happening to them like it's actually <laughs> happening right? this is a finite event Right. Um, I, I'd like to die in my tractor, on my tractor, not in it, on it, whatever, <laughs> whatever. Meaning, um, how does one articulate usefulness in the later stages of life, right? I mean, you could be Jane Fonda. You could just, you could get up and do fire drill Fridays. Um, <laughs> and just be, be out there, um, or you can gather family around. I mean, so there are none, neither of those, not one is better than the other, but I think there is a, a tendency for um, older people to be dismissed. Yeah. If you are in an assisted living facility, I don't care how fancy the there it's it's again, it's this siloing. Mm -hmm. It's not incorporating older generations. Right. Um, it, 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 there's just I, I can't as you can see, I'm struggling to articulate it. I just get a sense that it could be different. Definitely. I just well, get a sense. Ellen, don't you feel that um without being too critical, that our society as a whole is maybe moving in the wrong direction in terms of 
ageism. It just seems like we do not have institutionalized. When you bring up family, well, we're separated from our family for the most part. So we really have to work hard to get back to our family. And consequently, <clears throat> there's nobody propping us up that much. Like, you're doing pretty good there. You know, yeah. it's like, All we're, we're just, yeah all the more reason to redefine what family looks like. And then so it create one, you know, if anybody needs to adopt a, a grandma because theirs are far away, I'm here. You know what I mean? Um, and, and also uh, to really respect, you know, I sometimes wonder, I, I feel, you know, now I'm sort of a history book about Central Oregon, which is shocking. And I can remember, you know, skiing on wooden skis and my name was painted on the tip. I mean, you know, so it's, it's, it's sort of shocking when you realize that you're uh, a repository of a lot of history, but um, we'll repeat it if we don't listen to old people. Sure. So. Ellen, we are unfortunately at the end of our time for the podcast. I really appreciate you spending this time with us. And uh, My pleasure taken it it's been it's been awesome any last thoughts you have before we uh go off into the, our covid ethers here oh i probably a great rural um phrase for this time that we're in which is never say ho in a horse race <laughs> <laughs> well on that note ellen thank you for being here this has been the ben don't break podcast and uh, we appreciate you tuning in thank, thank you. you thanks ellen